0: Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website and all podcasts are available via iTunes as well as the Freedom of Species website. My name is Kate Gracie, and today we'll be hearing from the co-founder of the Micro Sanctuary Movement. Back in
2: a sec. This is the 5th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will bring together an exciting range of independent booksellers, zinesters and activist groups. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. Come along to celebrate books, pamphlets and zines, including radical fiction, the anarchist classics and cutting-edge radical writers from around the world. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to network with like-minded folks. It's free and we also provide free childcare. It's all happening at the Abbotsford Convent on Saturday, August 8th from 10am till 6pm and with an after-party in our squatted space late into the night. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, because another world is possible. The Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter.
0: Justin Van Cleek and his partner Rosemary founded the Microsanctuary Movement, as well as the Triangle Chance for All Microsanctuary. In case you're wondering, as I did, the triangle part of the title refers to its region in North Carolina. Justin's also a freelance writer on the topics of veganism, animal agriculture, animal liberation, and other activism-related issues. He's written for our Henhouse Vegan Publishers, and Project Intersect. Justin and I spoke by Skype last week. Welcome to the show, Justin. Now, you've said... Microsanctuary is a state of mind. What is a microsanctuary and why do you describe it like that?
1: that's a great question um so a micro sanctuary is really um a sanctuary that operates on a much smaller scale than most sanctuaries um that you're typically used to seeing so here in the states a really good example is farm sanctuary so they have you know several hundred acres several hundred animals um an operating budget of millions of dollars um with a you know paid staff uh, a board, all that sort of stuff. And so it's really very much like an organization and it also operates on a very large scale. Um, a micro sanctuary is really much more about individuals doing what they can with what resources they have in order to rescue farmed animals. Um, so as far as we're concerned, um, a, a micro sanctuary could be, you know, a couple of hens whom you rescue and live with you in your apartment. Um, it's really not about the number of animals you have, or the size of your property, or the you know number, uh, the amount of money that you can fundraise every year. It's really just about an individual doing whatever they can to um, create space for farmed animals to live a you know a safe life within a vegan home. Um, and so I think it's you know also useful to think about sanctuary as a state of mind because what really matters is the way that you approach creating these spaces for the animals. Um, so we tend to focus on the external stuff. You know, you think about a sanctuary and you get this vision of like, you know, rolling hills and beautiful barns and, and that sort of stuff. And, and that, that is okay. But also, um, if you really approach you know creating space and you know caring for animals and living your life in such a way that it's focused on the well-being of these individuals whom you've gotten out of the, the agricultural system that right in right there is as much a legitimate sanctuary as you know, a large scale sanctuary operating on millions of dollars. Um, you know, I don't think there's any real big difference between what happens on a large sanctuary and what happens in, you know, someone's small backyard with a few rescued chickens. Um, and because it's really about the way that you cultivate relationships with them and the type of care that you give to them. Um, and so if you're creating, you know, a vegan home, Uh, That's based upon respect for the animals and about ending their exploitation, but respecting them as individuals and giving them lifetime care, um, you know, and prioritizing their well-being. I really believe that that's as much a sanctuary as any and as anything else. Um, And I also think it's really important that we begin to see sanctuary in that respect Otherwise, we're going to be reliant upon large sanctuaries to do all of the farmed animal rescue and care for you know, the rest of, of – you know, into the future. And while large sanctuaries have done amazing things to rescue animals um, and to care for them, it's never going to be enough. Um, we need as many people as we can and as many vegans as we can you know, taking the initiative to get active and to do something positive for farmed animals. And I believe one of the best ways to do that is to bring them into your home. Um, and you know, so sanctuary as a state of mind is really about not focusing on, you know, uh, limiting yourself to what, you know, to, to, to a predefined idea of what your space has to look like in order to be a sanctuary, but totally rethinking the model and focusing on the type of care and the, and the respect and attitude that you bring to, um, to caring for these animals.
0: Right. So how is it different to rescuing a cat or a dog? Well,
1: I think the difference is mostly conceptual um, and, you know culturally uh, we have this great divide between com- quote unquote companion animals and quote unquote f- food animals or farmed animals um, so you know we 've been raised to believe that dogs and cats um, have some sort of like essential difference that makes them more valuable and more um, you know capable of becoming members of our family than uh, chickens, then cows, then pigs, then goats. Um, so, you know, we, we just, we're, we're all brought into this culture that has this great divide. And, you know, as vegans, we talk a lot about the fact that that disconnect is totally false that that rift between species is totally false. Um, That that's actually really a manifestation of speciesism to uh, see this one group of animals as, you know, companions who live with us and this other group of animals as either food or as, you know, beings who only exist on farms. Um, And so, you know, I think that um, what we're trying to do is to recognize that that conceptual divide is really false. And so that, you know, chickens or any other farmed animal are as worthy of being companions to us and as, you know, have the, the same sort of personalities and emotions and individuality um, that a dog or cat that we're used to interacting with would have. Um, and so, you know, I think micro sanctuary um, is particularly relevant when speaking about farmed animals because for the most part, nobody's doing that rescue. You know, when we think about rescuing animals, we really focus on dogs and cats. And there, I mean, granted, there are countless numbers of dogs and cats who need help and who need homes and who need caring, but there are not as many people focused on rescuing and caring for and and providing resources for farmed animals. Um, You know, that's not in any way related to them also eating something that they make or their bodies. You know, so I all the time see people talk about. Uh, rescuing hens and then they eat the hen, you know, the eggs, um, that the hens produce. Um, and it's really no different than having a backyard chicken flock as a non-vegan. I mean, you know, and obviously these people are not vegan, but somehow they can conceptualize themselves as rescuing these animals just because they're not living in a battery cage or living in a you know a poultry shed. Somehow they've created this better existence for them. And to a certain extent, yeah, that's true. They're not you know crammed into a cage, but their exploitation is still consider you know still continuing. Um, And so, you know, we I think we need more people focused on what rescue actually is, which is getting them out of exploitative situations and refusing to perpetuate that exploitation. Um, And so, I think micro sanctuaries are a perfect way to do that because it's all about vegans, you know, going beyond just not harming animals and not eating animals, but doing something directly positive um, to contribute to the well-being of individuals who are already here with us in this world as a direct result of human selfishness.
0: You wrote in your blog, and I'm paraphrasing you a little bit here, advocacy and leading by example are not enough. Activism has to be a key part of how we live in the world as vegans. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I really believe that um, it's easy for vegans to feel like once they go vegan – They've done. And they've done all that they they have to do. That just by going vegan, the world is magically going to get better. Um, you know, and I I do not want to discount how profoundly important it is for all. Every single person who cares at all about the world, um, whether that be strictly non-human animals, whether that be the environment, whether that be human rights, um, to be vegan—it's um, a—it's an absolute baseline for you know uh, living in a way that's that's actually respectful of our other beings um, here on this planet. Um, but that should not be a stopping point. I really believe that veganism actually should be a a, a launching pad, um, you know, because when we When we go vegan, I believe that we kind of come into this matrix of ethics and we we you know recognize that our decisions and our lifestyle has a direct impact on others and um, you know it's too easy just to kind of stop there and um, think that that's that's where our responsibility ends, but as humans on this planet, you know we have a on our shoulders the great responsibility of being part of a society that has created this massive system of exploitation of other beings. Um, And so, you know, by being vegan, I really think we should stop focusing on strictly, you know, being having it be like an individual thing, like, you know, it's my individual choice to go vegan and this is the way that I live my life. I think it really needs to be seen as, you know, directly impacting the rest of the world and to be a spur for us to do more, um, to change the world and make it better for other other animals and, you know, both human and non-human. Um, and so I think micro sanctuary is a really wonderful way to do that because, you know, by you going vegan you're not actually saving any animals um who are currently alive in this world you are you know potentially going to be not contributing to the breeding of further animals um but you know even when you go vegan you know there are more and more people being born around the world who are not vegan and may never go vegan you know so um, we have to recognize that that individual, individual choice um, it, it happens within this larger context of a very non-vegan world. Um, and so billions and billions of animals are being brought into the world every single year for the express purpose of being you know, exploited for the food industries. Um, and so um, I think if we can begin to see veganism uh, in a more active and positive way – um, which would be, you know, to um, use that as an opportunity to actually do something directly for animals. Um, and I think, you know, like I said, micro is a great way to do that because rather than just you saying, okay, I'm not harming any more animals, you're saying, what can I then do to actually make a positive difference for the animals who are already here? Um, and there are so many who need that opportunity um, to have a better life that's not, um, you know, centered on their exploitation that I really think it's a profound form of activism. Um, I, I like- like to say that one of my favorite form of, forms of activi- activism these days is, uh, you know, cleaning up chicken poop, <laughs> and it, it, it may seem like a weird way to phrase that, but if you think about it, you know, like, caregiving is a really radical act, um, you know, we, it's very easy for us to kind of isolate ourselves and pretend that, you know, the, the 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 most, you know, effective form of activism is to spend all our time on Facebook sharing, you know in articles and memes and stuff like that, but, you know, to actually take on that responsibility of being, of caring for an individual who has only been brought into this world to be a victim, um, and to be exploited, and then to use that as an opportunity to one, create an actual relationship with, uh, these individuals, but then two, you know, use that as, as motivation to be more of an activist and to speak out more clearly and more powerfully for, um, their being and, you know, to make a, a better world for them and to end their exploitation completely. Um, I really believe that that's, you know, something that many in the vegan movement have just not explored yet. Um, because it's hard, you know, I mean, it's hard to take on the responsibility of another living being. And it's extremely hard to run into that wall of, you know, the uh, oppression that they have in their bodies, um, that they can never escape from. Um, you know, and, and it's really hard to watch them suffer and to watch them die many times you know, despite your best efforts because they've been brought into the world to you know, break down um, and to be used expressly for food for just a few years and then to break down. Um, but I really believe that caregiving is a radical act and I really believe that rescuing farmed animals and you know, creating another model through which they exist in this world – and through which they relate to humanity is a very, very, you know, radical act.
0: You're tuned to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And we're hearing from Justin Van Cleek, who is the co-founder of the Microsanctuary Movement and also the Triangle Chance for All Microsanctuary in North Carolina. Tell me about the Microsanctuary Movement. What does the Microsanctuary Movement do?
1: Sure. Um, so, one thing that the micro sanctuary movement is like the, uh, you know, a, se- a central part of it is really just kind of introducing people to that idea of like another model of uh, farms, animal san- farmed animal sanctuary. Um, so, just to kind of plant that seed to say, wait a minute, you know, maybe hundreds of acres and hundreds of animals is not the only way to create sanctuary. Um, but it also is, is an opportunity for people who are already doing this. And there are many of them around the world to say, wait a minute, I'm actually part of something bigger. Um, you know, in, in my experience in doing this, just for the past you know um, year or so, um, we countlessly, you know, all, all the time we meet new people who are like, you know, hey, I've been rescuing chickens for a while now, and I never really thought of myself as a sanctuary. But through the micro sanctuary movement, like I have this, you know, identity that I can attach myself to and I have this larger movement that I can attach myself to. And that is very empowering. Um, I mean I think it really empowers people to not only see themselves as doing something really wonderful for farmed animals but then also to see that – recognize that they're part of a larger movement. Um, And so the micro sanctuary movement in in, in one part is meant to kind of just be that nucleus for people who are doing this work to feel like they're part of something and to feel like, you know, they have others around the world who are there with them. Um, but it's also a resource and information hub. Um, so we really wanted to, to kind of create an opportunity to have, you know, basic information on creating a micro sanctuary on caring for individual animals, um, you know, and also networking with other people who are doing it just because, you know, it's very hard as a vegan who does not have tons of resources that, you know, large sanctuaries do to really get good information about caring for farmed animals. Um, so, you know, a lot of times people have the best intentions when they rescue a chicken or rescue a goat. But, you know, if the only medical advice you have is from, you know, a, a livestock vet, um, that can be really challenging. And, and you know, as a chicken, as someone who cares for chickens, if your only access to information online is through, like, backyardchickens.com, you know, it's horrifying the sort of information that you run into as a vegan trying to care for these farmed animals, because, you know, the only sort of information that's really out there and widely available is focused on exploiting and killing them. Um, you know, so it's really crucial to find alternative, um, uh, sources of information. And so, you know, we've been working over the past year or so to create some of those alternative resources. So the microsanctuary movement website has like a care You know, kind of section that has some some basic introductory materials to caring for different species. um, You know, that is, again, is not about their exploitation. It's not to make chickens lay more eggs or it's not to get pigs fat really quickly so you can slaughter them. Um, It's really about, you know, caring for them as individuals for their lifetime well being. But, you know, along with that, we've also created um, uh, like different social media networks. Um, where people can share information and, and, uh, you know, share their expertise caring for these animals. So, one example is the Facebook group, Vegans with Chickens. Um, you know, it's over 500 members. Um, it's a really act, it is a really active group. Um, and, you know, we have everybody from people who are, you know, education directors at large sanctuaries to someone with, you know, several hens in West Virginia or several chickens in West Virginia, Um, you know, but they, it's a real great place for people just to kind of share their excitement and enthusiasm and love for chickens. But also, you know, if, if they have a, a, you know, a question about medical care or something like that, it's a, it's a place that they can go to. Um, It definitely is not a stand in for, you know, good veterinary care, but the reality of the situation is, is that um, many people have a hard time finding reliable vets for chickens, um, and the you know the knowledge that is out there, even amongst avian vets, a lot of times is limited and, and problematic. So while it is never meant to be a stand-in for veterinary care, it can also be a very helpful resource to inform people through the proce- you know, as they're going through the process of getting care by a, by a veterinarian.
0: It sounds fantastic. Do you have members here in Australia?
1: Um, we I know we have members in New Zealand. Um, I believe we have members some members in Australia, but um, the group has gotten so big at this point that I've kind of lost track. Um, But I'm pretty sure that we had some members from Australia, at least at some point. Um, But you know, it's definitely international. I mean, we have people from Europe. We have, like I said, some people from New Zealand, um, lots of people from the from the United States and North America. Um, so it's you know it's kind of growing more and more, but um, it's definitely it's there's definitely like a, a pretty sizable international representation there. So and it you know everybody's welcome. So just because you're an Australian vegan with chickens, it's you know you're not <laughs> you're not going to be barred from the group or anything like
0: that. I'm sure there'll be people here in Australia who'll be very interested. Tell me Justin, how did you get to this place of co-founding an international movement and creating a new model of animal sanctuaries?
1: Uh, well that's that's an interesting question. so um, just to put it in context and to make it as clear as possible to everyone that you know anybody with the desire and the will and the um, you know uh, the the compassion can do this sort of thing uh, four years ago. I had lived with zero animals. Totally lived by myself. Was a you know a vegan of eleven years or so. I've been vegan sixteen years now, and so you know at that point I'd been vegan for eleven years or so. Did not live with any animals, companion or otherwise. Um, was very happy living my own life, you know, uh, kind of all my own. Um, and I then met my now wife, who was very much active in animal rescue, and. You know, I had always had been thinking about animal sanctuaries as like something that I would like to do at some point in the future. But, you know, I had no real plan to get there. I mean, how many people, especially vegans, will you talk to and say, Oh, I'd love to have an animal sanctuary one day when I win the lottery or, you know, if I have a million dollars or something like that. Like it's always this wonderful idea that, that many vegans have in mind, but there's no real, you know, pathway to get there. Um, and so it was basically, you know, it's basically a dream in fairyland. I mean, you know, there's just, there was just no reality to that for me. So, you know, by meeting, you know, when, when my wife and I, uh, you know, got together and I started becoming a caregiver for animals, you know, it was an interesting transition, um, because I really had to kind of start to, to see my life in a very different way. Um, and, you know, fast forward several years and, um, we, uh, we moved to North Carolina where we currently live now. Um, out in kind of to a, a three-acre property out in the country, so we had you know more space and more resources. And you know we had talked about rescuing chickens one day, and kind of had interest in becoming more involved in some sanctuaries um, that were in our area. But you know even we never really thought of ourselves as being able to actually operate a sanctuary. We were on too small of a property, and you know we just did not really have the wherewithal to have this large organization and figure out a way to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to um, you know buy the sort of property we thought we need for a sanctuary. So, um, we did, however, start to realize that many farmed animals were coming into shelters throughout the state and had nobody working on their behalf. Um, so farmed animals would come into shelters and, you know, people would be coming to adopt them for any number of purposes. And you know, most shelters, they just want to get the farmed animals out because they have very, you know, their resources are not really set up to deal with goats or chickens or pigs. So they just kind of want to get them out. And a lot of a lot of shelters really have no screening process set up. So someone who wanted to, you know, adopt a pig to eat you know they could come and pay fifty dollars for a pig, and then you know that's much less than they would pay buying that pig for for food you know from from like some sort of a livestock auction or something like that so um the so that it was either that or euthanasia. Um, was kind of the two, like, you know, pathways out of the shelter that that seemed like they were, you know, was pretty much the only opportunities that that these animals had who were coming into these shelters. But, you know, it was kind of frustrating because this is a really golden opportunity to get an individual farmed animal out of the agricultural system. Um, You know, it it can be very difficult to find a legal and ethical way to get farmed animals off of farms and into sanctuaries. Um, And so shelters are this kind of really um, great opportunity to make that happen because when the animals come in, they've either come in as strays or they've come in as an owner surrender. And so you can very, you know, you can legally adopt them and do your rescue that way. And you've created, you know, and you, you've created an opportunity for them to live a life outside of the farming system. So uh, we started noticing farmed animals coming into shelters and we started working to, you know, rescue them and place them at other sanctuaries um, but as i 'm sure anybody listening to this who has worked on farmed animal rescue knows most sanctuaries are already quite full um you know the demand for a home for farmed animals is just it's it 's overwhelming um and so you know we quickly kind of realized how difficult it would be to place these animals and the kind of you know uh, the the you know kind of the breaking point for us in like deciding that we had to just you know rethink the model was we rescued two hens from a local shelter. Uh, Their names are Clementine and Amandine. They're still with us. They're they're absolutely wonderful. Um, But we rescued Clementine and Amandine as we named them from a shelter. And so they had been found wandering in the February cold Um, you know, with a little bit of frostbite and, you know, kind of a little bit worse for wear, but, uh, we rescued them with the intention of taking them to a sanctuary, um, a few hours away from us. Well, a snowstorm happened and kind of kept us snowed in for several days. And in that, in that period, within, you know, a day, we would absolutely fell in love with them. Um, and there was just no question that, that we were not parting with them and that they were members of our family. It was, it was that quick. Um, and once, once we figured, once we decided, Hey, wait a minute, no, we want to keep these, we, we want to keep these chickens as members of our family. Um, we were like, wait a minute, you know, why is it any wrong any, in any way wrong or in any way different for us to, to keep these chickens here and to create a space for them that's safe, that's non-exploitative, that's all about, you know, their well-being. Why is that any different than what sanctuaries are doing on hundreds of acres, you know, I mean, it was very clear to us that, like, you know, the mentality that we were bringing that and that the desire for um, giving them proper care was, you know, really not very different. Um, and so we fell into co-founding the micro sanctuary movement through Triangle Chance for All, which was the initially the rescue organization that we founded, that we then transitioned into being an actual micro sanctuary. So you know, it was in the kind of furnaces of Triangle Chance for All, which is here at our on our property, um, that we figured out that wait a minute, you know, sanctuary can happen at a micro scale, and this is actually something that other people might be interested in doing, and there's so much value in doing it, Um, because you know, if you had thousands of vegans rescuing you know, four or five chickens how many individuals is that that you're getting out of the farming system you know and that number would completely overwhelm the sanctuaries that are that are existent in existence already the large sanctuaries so you know we really believe that sanctuary can and should be a populist movement um it 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 need not be limited to multimillion dollar nonprofits um you know and and so we really we really realize with these two hens in our care that sanctuary is something that you do um, you know no matter where you are and no matter, no matter what you have it is really about the approach that you bring to caring for these animals
0: you can now hear
1: 3 in three different ways the same content is broadcast on all platforms 3cr 855 am 3 digital streaming live on 3cr.org.au digital radio is a new way of broadcasting. Listeners need to have a digital radio to hear the 3CR digital. 3CR digital is broadcast throughout the Melbourne metropolitan area
2: only. 3CR is still broadcasting on 8.55am so everyone can keep listening on their existing radio. Digital radio is clearer, higher quality signal. That means there's no interference from trans.
0: You're tuned to Freedom of Species on Three CR Community Radio, and we're hearing from Justin Van Cleek of the Micro Sanctuary Movement. You've got a strong position on the use of eggs and feathers, etc., of rescued animals, as well as on riding horses that have been given sanctuary. Can you explain this position?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, so we firmly believe, as ethical, well, we firmly believe that micro sanctuary is the center of it is ethical veganism. Um, you know, it, sanctuary has to be about non exploitation and about, you know, firmly reacting to and rebelling against any system of oppression and, re- and exploitation of these animals. Um, and so, you know, when we, when we rescue them and we create sanctuary for them, we have to be extremely careful, um, that we prioritize their individuality and their their you know um well being and it can be very easy to um kind of fall into compromises that uh infringe upon their their um you know individual autonomy and their well being um because of, we have this some this idea that we 're trying to do something for the greater good um so you know i 've seen sanctuaries and and rescues that for example will rescue chickens and then they 'll sell their eggs. Um, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, if you're participating in the the perpetuation and normalization of exploitation of these individuals, you're only ensuring that there are going to be more of them in the future who are, are either going to suffer and die or are going to need your rescue. Um, so, ideally, every sanctuary should be striving as hard as possible to put itself out of business. Um, you know, because otherwise if you're if you're not then that means that there are all these individuals who are you know suffering endlessly um and so you know as ethical vegans we believe very strongly that any form of exploitation of non-human animals is wrong whether that happens on a farm or a farm sanctuary does not matter Um, And so, you know, with chickens, we would never sell their eggs or give away their eggs. We would never use their feathers um, or sell their feathers or give away their feathers for human use because by doing so, you're continuing to commodify them and you're continuing to reinforce the uh, conception that they are here for humans to use. Even if that's a secondary thing, even if your primary purpose as what you think is to rescue them and to give them a nice life, if you're, in, you are in any way perpetuating and normalizing um, the use of them or their products, then I think you're only, you know, um, supporting an industry and a system that, that, you know, views them as commodities. So, you know whether or not that happens on a sanctuary is really kind of a secondary point it 's really a moot point to to the larger issue of you know no, non exploitation has to be at the like the forefront of everything that we do as vegans and as you know um, uh, people who run sanctuaries um, so the specifically in relation to the issue of horseback riding this is a This is a hugely contentious issue. I know you know I can probably count uh, you know for days and days and days the number of vegans who uh, ride horses and do not consider that to be um, you know uh, in any way uh, you know inconsistent with veganism to ride a horse um, but our position with horseback riding is is that um, You know, it is still a form of using these animals. Um, and, you know, I've heard many people say, well, I have a relationship with these horses. You know, I know that my horse really enjoys being ridden and that, you know, for us, it's a great way to bond and get out and to, you know, to go riding. It's a great way for us to interact. And, you know, sure that. The, the horse may may seem like uh you know he or she enjoys uh, themselves as you're as you're riding them on their back but you also have to remember that these horses have been bred and trained in order to respond positively to human interactions in that way so you know it's not like you're just finding a random horse who has no experience with humans, and you jump on their back and go riding, and you're both having a great time. Um, you know, it's 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 sort of similar to service dogs. I mean, y- yes, you know, these dogs respond very positively to ta- to tasks that human ge- humans give them, but you also have to remember the context in which they've been trained to do this um so you know they're used to to getting positive reinforcement from responding to human interaction in this way and so you know when you look at it that way um i do not think that it is in the in, in the horse's best interests for you to ride them i mean you know why not just go on a walk with the horse or why not just you know spend time interacting with him or her that does not involve you getting on the bat On their back and telling them, you know, what to do and riding around with them, um, you know. Again, I think to to allow horseback riding on a sanctuary or even as vegans is to continue putting these animals in the place of being kind of means to our ends, um, whether that be, you know, entertainment and enjoyment or you know, this idea that we have this relationship with them um, that is not really about mutual respect, but it's about kind of us having the role of, of being in a, you know, a dominant, dominant position.
0: I understand that you consider outreach and education to be almost as important as the rescuing. Tell me more about that.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, it's, is really important for us to find opportunities to individualize animal agriculture as much as possible. Um, you know, as vegans, we talk a lot about large numbers. Um so we talk a lot about, you know, ten billion animals in the United States are, are slaughtered for food every year. And I'm sorry to make all my statistics United States based, but you know, you can apply them to whatever the numbers there in Australia. And I'm sorry, I don't I don't know those numbers um kind of off the top of my head. But so in the United States, ten billion animals, give or take, are slaughtered every year for food. Multiple times of that billions and billions of billions are Living in the agricultural system at, at you know at any given time throughout the year with their fate being sealed already, um, so you know those are staggering numbers. They're overwhelming. You know how do you even wrap your mind around ten billion or fifty billion or sixty billion? Um, we can't do it as humans. We're not equipped biologically to do that. Um, what we can do is we can relate to individuals. Um, so if you think about the nine billion chickens who are raised and slaughtered for food every year in the United States there's there's almost nothing you can do with that but if you have an actual relationship with an individual and you're able to know their you know personality quirks you're able to know what it takes to care for them all that sort of thing that right away makes that abstraction immediate it makes it visceral. It makes it based upon an actual relationship with a, a real live individual, and I really believe that that totally changes the game for us as as advocates. And I also think that that it makes individual, uh, humans who are able to have that relationship, whether that be direct or whether that be even, you know, just kind of, um, learning about an individual and watching their story unfold through social media, it can be extremely profoundly changing. Um, you know, uh, we try hard to tell the individual stories, um, of the, the, the animals who, the residents who live at our micro sanctuary. And, you know, we have people who, talk to us as, you know, as if they know them. And I mean, they, you know, they consider them really important parts of their just kind of general day. And, you know, they're, you know, almost like in their circle of friends. And, you know, unfortunately, so many farmed animals never get that opportunity. But I think if we can really individualize those large abstract numbers, um, I think that's a great opportunity for people to really make these connections about what what it is that they're eating and the way that they're living, um, you know. Because it, no longer is it about this like huge number that that you really have no relationship, but it is about this this chicken or this pig whom you can relate to and whom you can remember every time you think about what it is that you're going to eat. Um, so uh, so micro sanctuaries can be great forms of, of outreach because. Because they operate on a smaller scale and they really operate more in the sense of, like, this is our family, um, you know, I think there's a lot more opportunity for, for those individual stories to get told. You know, you have a lot more opportunity when you have six chickens to really focus on the individuality of each chicken rather than to have them get lost in, like, you know, uh, 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 resident numbers that are in the hundreds. Um And again, I never, I never want to say that to, you know, um, denigrate what large sanctuaries do because I think they do wonderful work and it's hugely important. But I also think that there's a, a really great need and opportunity for micro sanctuaries to kind of, you know, uh, particularize this effort a lot more um, and so you know on the one hand there's the benefit that comes from having more people doing this rescue work and doing this caregiving but on the other hand there's also a great opportunity for more individuals to meet farmed animals and to, you know, build their own relationships with them and to learn about them as, as, um, as individual beings. And um, I, I think that that can only do great things for vegan advocacy and also for, you know, um, changing who we are as vegans and the way that we talk about um, the issues uh, that we're, we're trying to promote.
0: What you say rings so true. Those massive, unfathomable aggregate numbers tend to make you lose sight of the individuals involved and their personalities and their complex social bonds. Now, what are the logistics and practicalities of starting and running a micro-sanctuary? Is it really as simple as it sounds? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, that depends. Um how comfortable are you with chickens in your in your living room? <laughs> uh
0: you know, I, I it really
1: depends upon the species involved. Um but you know, our, our our what we always tell people is that if you're interested in rescuing farmed animals, you know, do your research and know what their their spe- their specific needs are um as species because each species has its own particular needs. And uh, whether that be, you know, housing and shelter and, you know, uh, that sort of stuff to nutrition and, and everything in between. Um, but I think that we can also oftentimes get too caught up in, you know, making sure that everything is perfect before we rescue, anim- rescue animals instead of actually kind of, you know, just doing it and learning as we go. Um, so like I said, when we rescued our first two chickens, you know, we did not have a chicken coop um we did not have like a special chicken area or anything like that so they lived in our basement for a little while they would spend their days outside in the backyard with us you know, carefully watching them, um, to, you know, be careful of predators and stuff uh, within a fenced yard. And then, you know, their chicken coop was our basement. Um, and they were totally happy. They loved it. Um, and you know, it was not detrimental to their well being. And right now, you know, we have several chickens who are inside our house with us. You know, they, they're in the living room walking around. Um, and it's totally normal. And the chickens absolutely love it. Um, we have chickens who will knock on the back door asking to come inside and hang out for a little bit. Um, you know, so for most people, when I say we have chickens in our living room, they go, what the hell are you talking about? You know, and that seems totally wrong. For some reason, we carry over this notion that chickens belong in a wide open field and they need, a, you know, a chicken coop and all that sort of stuff. And it's not necessarily untrue. They definitely need outside time um, and, you know, they need safe housing and stuff like that. But I think also we get caught up in these, you know, notions of what animals need that is entirely based on agriculture. And, you know, there are many reasons why the agricultural model for caring for animals is, is a horrible one. Chickens are a great example. You know, they, act, they absolutely do not like being in a wide open field. Um, <laughs> you know, free range, wide open fields are, are one of the worst situations that you can put your chicken in. Um, so to get back to your question, um, it is and it is not as easy as it sounds. Um, you know, I think that if you have the opportunity and you're presented with a chicken right in front of you. He needs to be who needs to be rescued. Do not stop and think, "Oh my God, I do not have a chicken coop," and, and blah blah blah. Like you know, to, that prevents you from rescuing that individual. You know, do it and you know, give them give them a bathroom. To live in for a while while you, you know, come up with resources and, and you know, give them space to, to live in. But at the same time, like if you know that you're interested in doing this, by all means, definitely do plenty of research. You know, become as knowledgeable as you can about the species you're interested in rescuing um, so that you can give them proper housing and, and absolutely the top top – concern has to be safety. Um, so, you know, you need to make sure that you know what it, what is required to create safe fencing, to create, you know, a safe enclosure for, for the animals, all that sort of thing. That's really important. So, you know, expenses can start to pile up as you start thinking about fencing and, you know, netting for your chickens in their aviary area and like all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, it, it, it definitely can become a little bit more complicated, but at the same time, I think it's very easy for us to get caught up in like all the, the, um, You know, requirements of making a perfect space and letting the the perfect be the enemy the good in the sense of like you know you can rescue chickens even if you live in an apartment um, or live in like you know a a little condo with a small backyard or something like that. Um, You know, chickens can can be very happy living inside with you. They're quite companionable, (laughs) and uh, a lot of times they actually prefer that because as prey animals, being outside in the in the open space can actually sometimes be quite stressful for them. So you know, when they're inside in your living room. They're fully enclosed, they're with the person they recognize as a caregiver and a protector, and you know they, they very much like it. Um, they'll just you know snuggle up with us on the couch many times um, <laughs> you know and just hang out so and obviously, you know a cow is not going to do that with you probably. It probably would be tricky for your couch. but um, you know I, the, the point I want to make is is that if you're interested in this, it's, it definitely is really important to kind of be as knowledgeable as you can and prepare yourself, but at the same time, like if you have an opportunity to um, to rescue someone eh, take it um, and you know figure out figure out how to make how to make it work for them and give them the best home you possibly can and and chickens are a great starting point um, because they their spatial needs are a lot less than say a cow um, but they also come with their own particular particularities and concerns about their health care um, so you know definitely do your research so that you're well prepared and you know uh, given proper vet care you know a, a single chicken is going to cost as much as you know a dog or a cat um you know every single year getting getting proper vet care so these are sorts of things that it's really good to know before you get into it um but at the same time like do not believe that you have to have several acres and chicken coops in your backyard in order to rescue a couple of chickens you know it's just it it definitely is not not true that you have to have a perfect space in order for for you to do something good for for these animals
0: now, can you define intersectionality as it means to you, and was it intersectionality that brought you to veganism, or was it vice versa?
1: Wow, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so intersectionality is something that I that has become a real key part of of my identity as an activist and as an advocate. I fully believe that oppressions are interconnected and that injustice anywhere is a, is a threat to justice everywhere. I also fully recognize the context and the history of intersectionality, that it's very much founded in um, you know, experiences of, of black women and women of color. And, and so what I try to do is I try to learn as much as I possibly can from the intersectionality movement and live as much of an ally to that as possible, while also working with other ad- advocates and activists who are very much strongly working on kind of a collective liberation approach. So so to answer your question, I came to intersectionality long after I had become vegan. It's one of my greatest failings and it's something that I kick myself about all the time because as a white male vegan living in the United States, I really had no reason to to learn anything about intersectionality. The vegan movement has a, done a very poor job of – Recognizing and honoring the diversity of people who are living vegan, and so most of us come to veganism through these mainstream nonprofit corporate nonprofit affluent mostly white models of, of living vegan and you know I was totally part of that, so as a white male vegan, there was really no urgency or impetus for me to to understand the experiences of vegans of color as I became more and more active as a writer um, and more and more interested in activism. I started to, you know, read people who were writing about um, the connections uh, between human and non-human oppression and who were really speaking very articulately about how important it was as vegans and as, you know, um, animal defenders that we recognize how these very different oppressions are are all interconnected and that we also not perpetuate oppressions for the sake of working for animal liberation, um, which I think is is something that happens all the time in the vegan movement, it's, it's very easy to utilize sexism or racism to make a, a case for nonhuman animals without recognizing how problematic it is to perpetuate any sort of oppression. Because I, I really firmly believe that you know if we continue to operate under the model that some people are lesser than us or lesser than some other privileged class then we're never going to to totally eradicate the th- things that make um, oppression of anyone happen. So I'm very firmly committed to, to the notion that intersectionality has to be a central point of veganism, just as ethics has to be, you know, the, the starting point for veganism. And so I believe that veganism needs to be radical. I believe that veganism needs to be intersectional. And I believe that veganism has to be active. And micro sanctuary, for me, is just one component of, a, of an intersectional, radical activist veganism.
0: So I'm guessing that you find that popular sentiment that if you love animals, you shouldn't eat them to be pretty skewy, That is, when viewed through the lens of intersectionality, that sentiment is merely suggesting animals who don't elicit fondness and general feelings of fuzziness aren't worthy of protection or to be free from oppression.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, because it remains about us. Um, You know, and speciesism is rampant in the vegan movement. And I think framing things that put, put animals' worth and value on our feelings towards them is, is the wrong approach to take, you know? I mean, I absolutely love as, you know, with, Deep, deep emotion, like every, every animal that I, that is a, a member of our family. You know, we've lost a couple of chickens and over the past couple of weeks and I still am, am, am not able to get past it. I mean, it, it was, it's absolutely heartbreaking. So that emotion is definitely there. And I believe it's a, it's a really important part for microsanctuary is forming those co- close bonds. But the necessity for or the need for and the urgency for um, veganism and Farmed animal sanctuaries and that sort of thing has nothing to do with whether or not we like these animals. Um, you know, how, whether or not we value them has nothing to do with their right to live autonomously. It, again, like it's very easy for us to think about, like, well. What do these animals mean to me? And then to formulate our, our active activism and our advocacy around that. Um, and I think that's why it's also very easy for us to focus our rescue efforts on dogs and cats because those are the, the animals that we've been brought up to believe are the ones, you know, worthy of our love and also the ones that we can care for. Um, so yes, I think, I think when you start to frame things based upon how humans feel about the animals, you're automatically kind of falling into that pit of speciesism. And, um, you know, again, like it really needs to be all about respecting them as autonomous individuals and caring for them as individuals and, uh, you know, not making a case for whether or not we should eat them based upon whether or not we love them. Because I can bet you any amount of money that I could go walk down the street right now and go to a fast food restaurant and ask every individual person in in that restaurant if they have an animal that that they love. You know, and they'll say, "Well, yeah, I have a dog at home, and I absolutely love him, and he's a member of my family." While they're munching on a cheeseburger, I mean, the ability to compartmentalize love for animals as this abstract thing and as this like you know, individual, you know, very specific relationship, while also continuing to eat and exploit animals, it, it happens all the time, and you know, so I think. Framing things that way is as problematic as framing things as uh, you know in the context of how intelligent is an animal, and that's how we that is how we determine whether or not they have moral consideration. Intelligence based upon human criteria has nothing to do with whether or not we should respect these individuals and not exploit them. You know, again, we have to stop framing things in, the, in you know based upon what we think and the way that we see the world, and just recognize that you know every single one of these individuals has the desire. To live life free from suffering and free from exploitation and we as humans need to respect that and if we do anything other than see them as individuals worthy of respect for their own reasons then we're continuing to put them in the place uh inferior to humans
0: you practice jiva mukti yoga is that correct (laughs)
1: <laughs> um not personally. I, I'm very much I, I have practiced yoga for a number of years and very much informed by the sentiment uh that comes out of Jiva Mukti. I, I'm absolutely you know in favor of Jiva Mukti yoga because it's one of the it's really the only school of yoga that recognizes how inconsistent it is to be talking about ahimsa and 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 that sort of thing while also exploiting other animals. Um, unfortunately, that, you know, kind of paradox is rampant and, and a real big problem in, in yoga in general. So personally, I'm not practicing jiva mukti yoga um, right now. Honestly, my <laughs> my yoga is, is mostly karma yoga in the sense of I'm super busy just running our micro sanctuary. But I, I've spent years practicing Buddhist meditation and I spent years Practicing yoga, and you know, to be honest with you, like I feel like those were very important stepping stones to me to get to where I am today. In specifically, uh, because it is all about taking that practice off of your yoga mat or off of your meditation cushion and into the world. And so I really believe that like if you're a a practitioner of yoga, um, if you're familiar with all that, like really understanding what karma yoga is and the importance of living and acting in a way that is in harmony with these higher values how important that is. And so, you know, I I think it's fantastic that Jiva Mukti really brings in that larger concern for compassion and that larger recognition of, you know, our connection to other beings, along with that kind of individual practice of uh, striving towards enlightenment and, and liberation.
0: Thanks so much, Justin, for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been so inspiring hearing about what you're doing over there in North Carolina.
1: I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and I, you know, I'm really excited for, um, the micro sanctuary movement to be reaching an audience overseas. And I would love to connect with anyone in Australia and your listener um, base who is interested in starting a micro sanctuary for myself as a vegan. I lived for 15 years as a vegan without having any relationship with a farmed animal. And, you know, I was very much committed to veganism. I never cheated. I had no, you know, misgivings or second thoughts. But once I started rescuing farmed animals and creating sanctuary and building these relationships with them, my veganism is totally different. I really firmly believe that by creating these relationships with farmed animals specifically, it brings a whole new meaning to veganism because it makes sense on a personal visceral level why it is that i 'm not eating animals you know it 's not just about the chicken living in a shed somewhere it is about Bibi or Clementine or Amandine or Hypatia or um, you know lavender or uh, you know any of these these chickens whom I actually live with. And by making it personal, that makes it all the more relevant and powerful.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Justin Van Cleek, who co-founded the Microsanctuary Movement, as well as the Triangle Chance for All Microsanctuary. After the interview, I wondered what Justin does with the eggs that his chickens lay. So I sent him an email, and he referred me to their website. The website reads... Typically we collect the eggs, boil them, mash them up with healthy extras like coconut oil, red raspberry leaf and ground flaxseed and we make bedtime snacks for everyone with the eggs and fresh greens and fruit. By feeding the eggs back to the birds who laid them we hope in part to return some of the vital nutrients that were pulled from their bodies to make the eggs almost every day and thus hopefully avoid some of the devastating health problems that most domesticated egg layers face. And of course the birds love to eat their eggs. To find out more about the Microsanctuary Movement, you can go to its website, which is at microsanctuarymovement.org. There's also a Facebook page. Similarly, Triangle Chance for All has a website, which is trianglechanceforall.org, and it has a Facebook page too. Hey, y'all,
2: this is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now.
0: Dr. Rhys Halter is a distinguished biologist, broadcaster and writer. He recently released his ninth book, Shepherding the Seas, The Race to Save Our Oceans. This is a passionate, lifelong environmentalist, and he is doing a speaking tour of Australia starting this week, and he's speaking in Perth, Melbourne, Adelaide, Hobart, Central Victoria and Sydney, all between the dates of the 7th of July to the 16th of July. I'll put a link to Reese Holter's tour dates and the details on our Facebook page. Also, hugs and kisses, big hugs and kisses to everyone who donated to our recent 3CR Radiothon appeal. We met our target, which was $1,600. It was it was a bit exciting as we only crossed that line in the final minutes of our live tin-rattling show. Anyhow, that keeps us on the air for another year. So thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody who donated so generously. That's it for this week. You can follow us and contact us via our Facebook and Twitter accounts I'm going to leave you now with a song called The Letting Go by Mount Moriah. That's a band recommended by Justin, our interviewee, this week. And this band hails from Justin's same neck of the woods. That's North Carolina. See you next week. (laughs)